Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. My guest today is Sandy Rattray, Chief Investment Officer of Man Group, one of the world's largest independent active investment management firms. Sandy checks both those boxes interesting and accomplished. He has a fascinating background and jointly devised the formula to trade futures contracts tied to the CBOE Volatility Index, which is better known as the VIX. We talked about how that came about and whether the VIX is a fair estimate of volatility. It was a wide-ranging conversation that touched on lots of other topics, including building a culture that is suited to data scientists and machine learning experts, and whether the markets functioned well during the COVID-19 crisis. I also tried out a new closing question that I think will become a regular feature. What would you bring on a long-duration space flight? So stick around to hear Sandy's answer. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Sandy Rattray, welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, it's uh, so great to have you joining us today. We've got lots to discuss and I've been really looking forward to our conversation. So I thought a really fun place for us to start would be all the way back, and I mean really quite far back. Um, I was reading that you grew up in uh, many different countries around the world, including Vietnam, the Sudan, Hong Kong, South Korea, Saudi Arabia. So that must have been quite an adventure as a young boy growing up around the world. It, it was an adventure and um, I saw a lot of things and uh, I suppose um, my father worked in the oil industry and so we traveled from one um, often quite dangerous country to the next. Uh, even uh, in the 1970s, South Korea was uh, nothing like as uh, civilized a country as it is uh, today. It was still very much an emerging, uh, an emerging economy. So it, uh, it gave me, I suppose, a pretty wide a range of experiences, uh, both uh, good and bad, and, and and probably a little bit exposure to uh, very unstable um, uh, countries, which uh, uh, in some ways is actually good preparation for the instability that markets often present you with. Indeed. Uh, when we were chatting a little bit before today, you mentioned that you were actually born in Vietnam during the war and that your two brothers were also born in, I guess, war-torn areas. I think you mentioned the Sudan. So it seems your parents had a penchant for, for danger, for living recklessly or living a life of dangerously. I think, yeah, so I certainly grew up in a way where, um, where I suppose that sort of danger um, featured into normal life. and. I think it sometimes also reflects to when you read the newspapers about a place, it can sound as though it's awfully dangerous there. Um, this summer, for example, my friends living in other parts of Europe have really wondered how people living in London could be surviving given that the UK had a worse uh, COVID experience than other countries. And of course, we all survived perfectly well. We had a bad, um, uh, a bad experience of the pandemic. We didn't have such a bad experience that most people weren't just getting on with their lives. And in many of these unstable situations that I grew up through, you, people would be reading in the newspapers that the countries were enormously dangerous and you couldn't do anything. And actually, most people were getting about their daily lives in a fairly normal way. 
So I think when we chatted, I think you mentioned that your mum was rather a fearless uh, journalist, um, and then in some ways that had perhaps shaped your your views on personal risk. And you mentioned to me about sort of cycling through London. I wouldn't mind if you could just share us your view on on risk in terms of you ride around London, and people sometimes think that's quite risky, or or sort of you shouldn't be doing that. Well, so I think I, I certainly believe that many people think. They find it very hard to really think about risk in a statistical sense, uh, and um, they will exaggerate risks. Obviously, you know, one typical one is people are very scared of uh, swimming in the sea in some places because they might get bitten by a shark. It happens. It happens remarkably rarely, but people's expectation that that might happen is much much higher uh, than the um, than the reality. And I certainly grew up in a way where I took lots of risks. Uh, doing all sorts of different things, which uh, probably would be considered very bad parenting today, but actually shaped me, and I think probably shaped me for the positive. Um, and um, and often I think it was just a more sort of realistic understanding of what the uh, what the risks were, as opposed to um, a a sort of a, a fearful one. So we're definitely going to get more into risk a little bit later uh, in the show. But before we do, I would love to also hear your investment origin story. Uh, I know that you uh, started out with a master's degree in natural sciences and economics from the University of Cambridge. Tell us how you ended up sort of where you are today. So actually, two women were involved in in, um, making me an investor. Um, The first was Margaret Thatcher, uh, who... Uh, privatized a lot of UK companies and at that time we were living in England and you could invest and buy those companies and I was a teenager and I took my savings and I went and invested in these stocks and it was a pretty easy way to make money at the time um, and the other person was my mother who uh, encouraged me to um, to do that sort of thing to go and take my money and and have a go on the stock market and see if I could work out what would be a winner and, uh, and and what would not be a winner. So that really predated um, any studying of, uh, of markets. And I think it was probably somewhat unusual thing for a teenager to do. Um, and then I went and studied natural sciences and really thought I was gonna be a physicist. Um, and in the end, I didn't become a physicist, but a lot of the training I got at university um, has really been helpful to me in the in uh, much of the systematic strategies that uh, that I've run over the years. Great. Well, let's then bring the conversation to today. You know, you you're a CIO of, of Man Group. Uh, what's it been like leading an investment team at the world's largest listed hedge fund during COVID nineteen? So, what has worked well? What has surprised you? Tell us. Tell us what it's been like. So I think, you know, firstly, just sort of operationally, it's worked remarkably well. I don't think anybody would have guessed uh, that uh, we could carry on operating in the way that uh, we have done. Almost, you know, everything has just flowed smoothly. Uh, We've obviously moved to having everybody working at home uh, in a very short period of time. The things which were maybe particularly surprising in that were we executed extremely large trading volumes, especially in Uh, March and April. And historically, we had always thought that, well, if people want to work from home, um, we we will try and work with them to do that. But trading is one thing that we think is less good to do from home. It worked pretty well from home. So um, the team, I think, uh, just sort of got with it and got with the new agenda um, of uh, working in this difficult environment. And that was a great success. I think the 
other things that worked well for us are we um, have very active risk systems, which we have mostly built ourselves, and our risk systems uh, switched on very rapidly at the end of February and early March. And particularly for our systematic macro funds, we took risk down very rapidly in that time. And that helped us enormously um, in the March, April period. Uh, we found that the cost of trading went up in March, but maybe not as much up as people would have expected. And that's in large part because I'm slightly allergic to paying bid offer spread. I don't understand why banks should be the people that earn bid offer spread and fund managers and the buy side should be paying bid offer spread. And so the way we've tried to organize our trading is to pay bid offer spread as little as possible. And that obviously, and, and therefore earn the bid offer spread. And when bid offer spreads widened a lot in the March, April period, that actually was really very helpful in terms of controlling your cost of trading. So risk management went well. Um, trading went well, the actual sort of physical business of working from home uh, went well. I think for many professional fund managers, and I would certainly include myself in that, the speed of the snapback um, in um, April, May, and June uh, caught us by surprise. I think that we didn't think that something would, uh, would uh, that had been so negative in March uh, without really a solution being found to the crisis, uh, to the pandemic. Uh, could result in such a rapid uh, mark, market recovery, the fastest since 1987. And so that that was the most difficult bit, I think, is, is um, it looks as though it was mostly retail driven. But as a professional fund manager, sort of seeing, well, the market's moving this way, but the information flow doesn't seem consistent with that. So I definitely want us to talk a bit more about uh, sort of risk and volatility. But before I, I get there, um, one thing you didn't touch on, which I'd love to talk to a bit about, is just culture. So how has the culture changed over the last six months? And I know that you think about culture a lot, uh, especially around building a culture that's suited to data scientists and machine learning experts. Could you spend a few moments just talking about that? Yeah, sure. So I think there's a few bits. The, the first is we have clearly a culture of information sharing. We, I don't believe that um, it's a, a good idea to run a business in a way where people aren't sharing information. And the reason for that is that generally bright ideas don't happen from one person on their own. They happen from several people collaborating. And so uh, a collaborative culture um, is incredibly important to us. Uh, clearly, collaboration becomes a bit harder when you're no longer in the same um, physical space. So we've had to put a lot of effort into you know, making people uh, operate and collaborate in the same ways as they did before when they could bump into each other in a coffee area or have a meal together or whatever it is. So that's been a, a, a focus for us. We've done lots of events for people. Uh, we've had things like uh, sending every member of, uh, of uh, our team um, in one of our investment engines a pizza to make it home. You'll make your pizza and then, you know, look at your uh, look at the thing you've made in front of your uh, colleagues. It turns out some of us were better cooks than others. But the, but the, you know, the idea of sort of, you know, doing events together where you couldn't be together, um, and that was really to get information sharing. So that's, I think, been a very important part of what we do. And that extends not just from quant to quant, but it also from quant to discretionary and discretionary to discretionary. So an openness and an information sharing culture is extremely important to us. I think the other 
and, and has a clear business rationale. I think people, it's a little bit like the risks that we talked about over on uh, earlier on. People tend to overestimate the risks of information leakage. In the end, if I describe a model to you in great detail, you still actually won't be able to replicate it in, in my view. Um, and so, but people are often very fearful that that might cause destruction um, to a business if you talk about something. I think they overestimate that risk and they underestimate the damage from uh, from not information sharing. So I think that's that's one um, uh, strong cultural uh, bit. And and the other is I think we we've certainly felt that you uh, we, we've put an awful lot of effort into treating our people well um, and with respect. And and in this period. One of the key, I think, lessons has been, you know, different people have different takes on this, uh, uh, on this pandemic, and um, and uh, different people have had very different personal experiences around it, and you need to be very sensitive to that. So organizationally, things have functioned very well. It sounds like. Do you think that markets functioned well during the COVID nineteen crisis? For the most part, I think they actually did function extremely well. Uh, they. Uh, liquidity carried on being made available. Um, of course, prices moved a lot, but they didn't move um, in extraordinary jumps. They moved relatively continuously. So I think markets um, worked for the most part very well. There were some exceptions to that, uh, particularly um, around about the US Treasuries market and the US uh, TIPS uh, market, where we certainly saw uh, very surprising periods of illiquidity, especially in tips. And that's not something we would have expected. It was probably a function of extremely levered players uh, needing to de-risk their portfolios very rapidly and then not being the opposite side. So there were these pockets and it's not, a, obviously it's a, you know, amongst the world's most important markets, the US treasury market. So it's not an insignificant um, uh, occurrence, but for the most part, markets did function well, they priced uh, risks and they carried on trading. You could trade uh, virtually continuously in, in almost every market. So how does Man Group think about, I'm use the air quotes, best execution? Well, so best execution, I think, is one of these slightly extraordinary phrases because it's commonly used uh, by regulators and others, and it's not really very well defined. And I, I think it's unclear to me whether best execution means the best of everybody, uh, the best that you can possibly do, um, the uh, the best that you might be able to do today, um, or the best given the circumstances. All sorts of you know qualifications around it. So I think it's not a particularly useful term because it it could mean so many different things in in different context. For us, what it means is we invest an enormous amount of money and effort into our execution technologies. Uh, my view is that certainly in listed markets, most liquidity now uh, comes from uh, the electronic market makers, so sometimes called high-frequency traders. It doesn't come from more traditional sources of liquidity like banks. Those firms have fantastic technology and extremely good technologists, uh, and you need to be up to the same standard as them if you're going to be at the right end of the deal of getting best execution for your clients. And that's not easy. So uh, in our case, what that means is invest very large amounts of money in terms of developing uh, both your execution technology, but also your execution algorithms and build your own execution algorithms because you will build better ways if, of executing if you're designing them for your own alpha profile and your own flow. 
Excellent. So let's now get to uh, to risk. And I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here. Um, we recently had uh, a speaker on a webinar here who talked about risk being risk is what you don't see and thus don't talk about. Um, and I know you feel differently about that. So tell us uh, how you think about uh, risk and this idea of trying to find the next black swan as something being a bit fanciful. Yeah, it was one of my least favorite questions. Least favorite questions is, you know, tell me what the next black swan will be, um, because I don't think anybody's got any particular skill at that. And this year, there were almost nobody forecasting uh, that there would be a pandemic. Um, and uh, prior to the uh, financial crisis of 2008, it was very similar. People did not um, did not forecast it. They didn't get it right. So if you spend a lot of time trying to work out what the next really bad event is going to be, you, you, you are probably going to get it wrong. I uh, recently um, had a conversation with a uh, former health minister in the UK who had run an enormous exercise planning for pandemics uh, two years ago. Um, they thought that they had the best planning for pandemics anywhere in the world, in the UK. And the, as we've talked about earlier on in this call, the UK has had a rather bad pandemic experience. So what went wrong? Well, they planned for a different type of pandemic. They planned for a flu-like pandemic uh, rather than the virus, which spreads in this particularly aggressive um, form that, uh, that COVID spreads in. So they planned for a, a, a black swan event. Um, but they got it slightly wrong. And as a result, they didn't have, for example, enough testing in place, and they certainly didn't have uh, test and trace in place, and they hadn't really thought about um, the physical separation, which we've all had to endure, because they were they just got the wrong type of pandemic. And I think that planning for black swan events in markets, you do too much of getting specific about what the event is going to be. You are very likely to end up uh, falling into uh, the same trap, and you can think of all sorts of things that might go wrong, um, and uh, and not get the right ones. So, what what is the right thing to do? The right thing to do then is to try and think more robustly about what might come your way, and to build uh, risk uh, systems and technologies and approaches which are not trying to pin down what the actual event is going to be, but rather spend time thinking about how you would respond um, to a um, series of uh, risk events where, especially when those risk events are happening, it's extremely unclear uh, what's going to happen next. In our case, what that means is that uh, we, uh, most of our risk systems, of course, are powered by uh, historic data, uh, just as I think other people's risk systems are powered by historic data. We use quite high frequency historic data, so we're not using uh, month to month or week to week data. Uh, we're using a much higher frequency than daily. Uh, data. And what that does is it allows us to be much more responsive, to adjust our estimates of risk much faster, even if we're not sure what's going to happen next in the particular crisis event that we're in. So, so what I'm trying to say then is I think if you try and get too obsessed with thinking about what the next black swan is going to be, you'll probably get it wrong. There are just so many things that could go wrong. So you have to think more generally on how to navigate a bad risk event as opposed to how to identify what the next one would be. 
think that's very sound advice. Now, in a previous life, I had a, a, a an editor who loved what he called cocktail nuggets. And I have to say, you have a gem of a cocktail nugget, uh, and that is that you jointly devised the formula to trade futures contracts that are tied to the VIX. And that was back in 2003 while you were working at Goldman Sachs. Now, listeners may not know the story, but I guess necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, and there's quite a story about how you ended up uh, co-formulating that formula. Can you just tell the listeners a little bit about how that came to be? Well, so it's a, a fairly simple story, and it mostly is uh, serendipity, um, frankly. Um, it was a number of different uh, things that happened. One was I was working in New York for Goldman Sachs. I used to travel and see plenty of clients' offices in those days. Everyone had TV screens uh, hanging up in their offices, and they had all these asset or all these numbers that would come across the screens, the price of oil, the yield on the treasury bond, the price of the S&P 500, all that sort of thing. And it would have the VIX. Um, and the VIX was the only thing uh, that you couldn't buy or sell at the time. Um, so you had that as an observation. And then uh, we had an inquiry. Um, my uh, a great colleague of mine, uh, Devesh Shah at Goldman, uh, came along to my desk. I was running uh, the uh, derivatives research. He was running the uh, the uh, options trading, and he said, "Look, I've had this inquiry um, to to do a trade on the VIX. Can you help me do it?" To which I, my first question was, "Well, what is the thing?" Because I, I sort of know what it looks like on the screen, but I don't know how it's formulated. And we worked out that the formula that was used, you couldn't really hedge an instrument. Um, you couldn't do a trade on that thing. So we then came up with, "Well, why don't we?" Do a different formula and we came up with um we knew about this instrument called variant swaps uh, they were very specialist market at the time we said well maybe we could use that formula create an index and then you could trade you could hedge a future or forward on that index and um and i happened to know uh, the the person that ran indices at the cboe and so i called him up and said you know this is what i think we should you should do uh, with your index, it was it was and remains owned by the CBOE. Uh, rather helpfully, uh, my explanation can't have been much good. So he then said, could you write that all down? So I wrote it all down and sent him a letter. So I have a record that I uh, sent this to him in um, in uh, uh, 2003. Um, and then the futures contracts got launched uh, in 2004. Uh, it was very difficult going at the beginning. People, you know, people said they would be very enthusiastic about the VIX as a product. Um, I did a survey of my colleagues in the sales force. I was going to be able to retire on the uh, on the forecast of what they thought they'd be able to do on 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 the VIX uh, in terms of traded volumes. Um, and day one came along, and and there was no volume. And day two came along, and there was still no volume. And day three, it was still still quite hard. And in the end, we found actually much more business in Europe um, than the US. And so that that's really where the volume started. Uh, and the other thing I can say is I, I had a colleague who said, well, look, you really have to call all the other banks and find out uh, what they think about this. And so I called 10 other banks and 10 out of 10 said it was a bad idea um, and uh, that they weren't interested. Obviously, that's all changed now. But it tells you a little bit about when you're creating something new about how difficult it is. You know, Basically, all the smart people that our competitors were against um, and um, and the clients that said they were going to trade didn't trade, and it, it was all very tricky. Now, of course, it trades enormous volumes, and it's a totally different story. 
Yes, I mean, in the US, certainly there are lots of headlines around the VIX. And I was checking just a, a few minutes ago before we came online to see where it was trading at the moment. It's around 26. So I guess my question is to you, is the VIX a fair estimate of volatility? Sort of, uh, it's a mixture. It's yes and no. Uh, when it first started, it was really measuring something. And because you couldn't buy and sell it, uh, then it wasn't that influenced by flows. It was a little bit because it used the underlying option prices, but you couldn't trade the VIX itself. Um, as it's become um, more and more heavily traded, then it would be remarkable to think that the trading in the VIX wouldn't impact the level of the VIX. Uh, after all, I think nobody would think that uh, trading in oil uh, doesn't impact the oil price. Of course, it impacts the oil price. So uh, trading in the VIX clearly impacts the level of the VIX. Um, there's Goodhart's law for those that want to read more broadly about it, uh, that an indicator once observed starts to become less reliable. Uh, but that said, um, it is reflecting prices. And right now, of course, we have an election with a very uncertain outcome uh, uh, around it. And, uh, and so uh, implied volatility as measured by the VIX, and especially if you look at the futures contracts, um, over the November period is much higher than realized volatility. It might look terribly expensive. Uh, personally, I think actually it may well get more expensive or it may go up uh, because uh, there's not very many sellers of volatility uh, currently and, and there are likely to become more buyers of, of volatility. So I think it's expensive and I think it might become more expensive. Are you worried about the snowballing power of the VIX? Uh, absolutely. I think that there are a couple of places to worry about that. So one is um, especially short um, products that have been issued on the VIX have a built-in snowballing effect. Um, and um, because the hedging of those products generally requires uh, the issuer of them to buy more VIX as it goes up. And so uh, we saw this um, a couple of years ago. Um, with a uh, very violent spike in the VIX um, and uh, into the market close. So I think that's one feature. And the other component is that the formula, which um, is a very well-known form uh, formula today, it has a very large amount of deep out of the money puts in it. Um, so the formula is technically it's one divided by the strike squared times uh, the price of the, um, of the option at a, at a whole strip of different uh, strikes. And what that means is one over the strike squared for the low strikes for the small numbers is a big number. And, and those deep out of the money puts are often not very liquid. And so there are definitely periods, including expiries, where uh, there can be a lot of volatility in the VIX linked to the way the formula is constructed. So the formula has many strengths that it's hedgeable. Um, and that really allowed a futures market to get created, but it has some weaknesses too. Great. Um, just very briefly, Sandy, could you just share your views uh, on the future of investing and the role of technology and data? Okay, so the, the, I think uh, people are often a little skeptical that investing might have more technology and more data involved in it. And they often say, well, that's the preserve of quants um, who... Uh, don't really understand how proper investing uh, takes place. And I think my response to that is there isn't a profession that I'm aware of in the world that isn't using much more technology 
uh, than before. Just take medicine as an example. You would be very surprised if you met a doctor that said, I don't use all the technology that was invented in the last 20 years. I use what I learned about at med school. You'd be really puzzled by a doctor saying that, and you probably wouldn't use them. Um, now reverse it the other way around and hear a doctor think of a doctor listening to a fund manager saying, well, I don't use all this new technology because I use the investing techniques I learned at, at business school uh, 20 years ago. I think that doctor would be pretty surprised by the investor, the fund manager saying that. So realistically, the amount of data available is growing and data is just information. And there's always been an advantage in having better information, whether because you've processed it better, you've understood it, you've analyzed it better, you've found something in the data that other people um, were not able to find. And that's not a new thing. That's been true for as long as investing um, has, uh, has been possible. So, um, so that's what data is. And then the computing side of it is really just the ability to process data. And you know, a very nice example is we have machines which read text um, in my firm and in many other firms, I think as well. They don't read quite as well as humans today. They read a lot more than humans do and, uh, and a lot faster than humans do. And so there's a relative advantage in some areas of consuming text for machines. So speaking of humans and technology, I know that one of your pet peeves is the conflation of AI or artificial intelligence and machine learning. And we see this happening a lot. So can you just dispel the, or, or clarify the difference so people don't perpetuate this uh, misunderstanding? Well, so, so I think AI is often you know, it's used a lot by the newspapers and um, it suggests that we've got machines that have become artificially intelligent, they've become intelligent. And you know, maybe we'll get that one day and there are some advances that suggest that maybe machines are in a rather limited way um, becoming intelligent. Machine learning is, uh, is much more machines learning themselves from very, very large uh, data sets. And there uh, we've got lots of evidence that we can already do that uh, very well today. Uh, to give you a, a, a simple example, um, in my own firm, we um, when we when we work out where to send a trade, if we could trade it several different ways, well, pretty much the best way to work out how to trade that is to use a machine learning technique, which says, well, I've got this order. The market looks a bit like this today. The order looks a little bit. It's got these features. What's usually the best thing to do? Well, I look at all the samples of of all the trades I've done historically, and I do it this way. Uh, a human thinks they can do that, but they have lots of biases. The machine can just learn from the data. It can, it can learn what the right pattern is in the data. So I think the AI sort of you know, sounds um, mystical and extraordinary and, uh, in the features in science fiction films. Machine learning is something which uh, it can today be a very significant part of, of a fund management business. Well, thank you for clarifying that. So I usually like to end our, our conversations with what I call the ray of sunshine question, and that sort of came about uh, because of COVID-19. But starting today, I'm actually going to introduce a new question or two questions. And uh, the first question, and I think you've had a preview of this, is I was reading on NASA Education that they have a, a question on one of their modules, what would you bring if you were going to space? So my question to you is, what would you bring on a long duration space flight and why? So I would bring something that I'm almost sure NASA wouldn't let me take along. 
which is a grand piano. So I'm a keen pianist and I have a piano at home. And that's uh, one of, if it was an object, then that, that's the object that I would most like to, uh, to bring along with me. I have no idea how a piano would operate in a, uh, in a zero gravity um, environment. It doesn't bear thinking about, but uh, assuming it would work, then yes. I would like to bring it along. <laughs> well, I've seen astronauts take up uh, a flute, I believe, and a guitar, but I've not yet seen a piano. <laughs> Um, and then my ray of sunshine question, uh, I just try to end with something positive and COVID-19 has, has wrought so many changes, some of them positive, some of them negative. So just for you, what do you think, or what do you hope will be the most positive outcome uh, from this COVID-19 pandemic? I think the most positive outcome is um, going to be that we rethink a little bit um, the way that we operate as a society. And I think we're almost going to have that forced upon us, given um, that people have had to adapt their lives so much and, and perhaps reevaluate which things are important and which things are, are, are less important and how we want to respond as a society to that. And so that's my hope is that there is, uh, there's all this instantaneous response, which is necessary. Clearly different countries have responded quite differently. Uh, but there's the instantaneous response. We won't know for several years, I think, which one of those responses was the best response. We definitely don't know now, although many people would like you to believe they know now. I don't think you can possibly know now. So there'll be the sort of working out what the best response was and uh, hopefully um, some lessons learned from that. But I think the bigger one is, does it cause us to rethink a little bit the way that we want to operate as a society? And there are plenty of possible uh, ways that we could change, which I think might be for the positive. Well, I certainly hope so. It's been a tremendous pleasure chatting with you today, Sandy. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.